All right, g'day, um, ladies and gents, and welcome to the uh, Drones for Good podcast. Uh, my name's Andrew Crow, and today I've got Simon Hooper from uh, Precision Autonomy. Welcome, Simon. Wow, thank you, Andrew, for the invitation. Yeah, it's great to be here. Pretty excited about this uh, this episode today. We're going to talk all things insurance, underwriting, risk, um, looking after our, our systems and our um, programs, some stuff that we don't typically think about when we think about um, drone programs. I'm really pleased to have you along, Simon, to give us that uh, that expertise. So thanks for thanks for coming. Great. Hey, look. So let's um let's get your background first. So how did you get into this? How did you end up doing underwriting for drone programs and other things? Um. Really good question, actually. So I've actually got a bit of a unusual background, which a lot of people may not be aware of, but I was actually in the Air Force as a pilot before I decided that wasn't for me. And I got out of the Air Force and finished a Bachelor of Aviation at Swinburne University in Melbourne. <clears throat> and then while I was at Swinburne, we, uh, uh, one of uh, my old mentors, Julian Fraser, who was the general manager at QBE, actually presented. And I had a coffee with him and, and he offered me a job after the coffee, basically. Um, and that's how I ended up at QBE, uh, where I was working there for about six and a half years um, as, a, as an aviation underwriter. So more broadly, not, more broadly than drones, I did also general aviation. Um, but while I was at QBE, which a lot of the listeners may be aware of, I, I did look after the drone portfolio and basically started it from almost, almost nothing to what, what it is today. Um, after a few years at QBE, I decided that was enough and, and moved on from QBE to work at Textron Systems Australia. Uh, which is a fantastic opportunity. Um, I only stayed around there for a very short time um, due to some personal personal things in my own life. I had a, had a baby and, and decided to take a, some time off to, to, with my wife to look after the newborn. Um, and then I started with Textron Systems in uh, November 2017. Um, so since I've been with Textron, uh, sorry, I started with Precision Autonomy <laughs> in, in November 2017. Gotcha. Um, so I've been with them for about two and a bit years. Um, and since then, it's been a, a pretty wild ride. Um, we obviously did usage-based insurance to start with. Mm-hmm. So usage-based insurance is basically pay per minute product where you can uh, take out an insurance policy for an annual period and then you literally pay for it as you're flying the drone. Um, but just recently, we've also um, extended our product range to be able to do traditional insurance, which is an annual policy, which is what most people are used to as well. So you can get, you can get either either. Um, but effectively what we're trying to do is just accelerate the safe adoption of autonomous vehicles. That, that's the intent of precision autonomy. So, so, so have you seen the, the industry mature and, and the insurance market around this stuff mature as, as the industry matures? Yeah, I still think we're still in the infancy of, mm-hmm. of drones, to be quite honest. Um, a, a, lot of, a lot of, you go between huge amounts of skepticism and then a lot of people that are quite innovative and want to get into the space. Um, the, the market here in Australia from an insurance standpoint on drones is still developing. Um, mm-hmm. We're still seeing the same amount of growth we were five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two ways you can look at that. You can be hugely concerned about the growth because you just never really know when it's going to stop and when it's going to mature. Um, or the other side of the coin is you can be hugely positive about it and kind of think that it's, it can just continue to go. Um, so from my perspective, we do believe at Precision Autonomy that we're only still at the start. Um, you know, the, the commercial space that we know today is going to be a lot different in five years' time uh, as drones become much more autonomous, much bigger, doing much Large more... Larger scale adoption. Exactly right. Okay. So, you know, a lot of my customers today are aerial photographers, um, you know, your, your resource energy companies that are doing surveying using, I'd say, consumer-grade drones, consumer-level mm-hmm. drones. Um, they aren't what I'd expect 
to be operating in five years time. Yeah. But, but as an underwriter, so you, you've, got to, you've got to go through the motions and actually learn the risk as it develops um, and create that historical evidence. Because um, without that historical evidence, it's really, it's really hard to actually um, sort of get an outcome from a premium perspective. So one of the things that's really important to me is, is developing not just the historical evidence, but also the relationship with the industry and, and getting honest feedback from the customers as well as the manufacturers on what works and what doesn't work. Because in five to 10 years time when we're sitting here, um, we should have a lot more evidence to be able to have substantial underwriting profiles. Mm -hmm. We do have those underwriting profiles today, but they have to develop over time as well. So if we probably take a step back because we sort of jumped straight into insurance, <laughs> but let's talk about precision autonomy. So what do you guys do? And, and we keep using the terms and, and you know, I'm not an insurance professional, so I'm not too sure. I pay my, my home loan, I pay my, uh, my mortgage insurance and I pay all those types of things around the place, uh, but I don't really understand uh, insurance and underwriting and the difference. So maybe if you could give our listeners a, a bit of an idea around what does precision autonomy do? And then uh, the underwriting component, what, what the hell is that? Yeah, excellent. Uh, again, great question. So pre <laughs> precision autonomy is um, uh, what we want to do is we want to accelerate the safe, safe adoption of autonomous vehicles. Uh, drones is our starting point. Uh, we do think that it's going to be a lot more than just drones with regards to autonomous vehicles in the future. Um, how we make ends meet today or how we make money today is, is through insurance and risk management. Um, so we do have a philosophy on risk management and how that's going to look like for an autonomous future. Um, and the way you commoditize risk management is through insurance today. That may change in the future, but today it's through insurance. Um, so what does underwriting actually mean? Um, so effectively what we do is we, we take a scenario um, and then we look at various attributes of that scenario. So let, let's use an example of uh, an aerial photographer who might own a Phantom 4. Um, they've just bought it. They've never operated the drone before. Um, so in that scenario, we would look at you know, the technology that they're using, which would be the Phantom 4, which we have a lot of information on. Mm -hmm. um, the experience or the, the pilot themselves, which they might not have any experience. So we take that into consideration along with the, uh, many other factors. <coughs> Um, and the environment in which they're, they're operating. So an aerial photographer generally has a pretty, what I'd call a pretty static environment. So it doesn't change, like they're doing the same thing day in and day out. Um, so once we have those sort of three elements, we can start to build a risk profile around them and how they fit within the rest of the, the RPAS community. Um, and we start to compare operator to operator. So what, what, what the operator will feel is the premium. Um, and that's really what we come up with to commoditize that risk. So it's a trade-off. So what the operator is doing or the, the person who's taking out the insurance policy is saying, we have a Phantom 4 we'd like to insure. It's worth $3,000. How much is it going to cost to do that? So I do that risk analysis, which I just spoke about with those various factors. And then we come up with a premium that would basically equate to an ability for us to manage a claim across an entire portfolio um, for that particular operator. And that's how they that's how they effectively trade off their risk for a price. And what are we insuring? Are we insuring um, aircraft and people and hurting other people? What are we actually insuring? Is yeah. it just the physical assets or is it everything else? Yeah, it, it is a bit of both. So, you know, what most people want to cover is the liability. Mm -hmm. um, so the liability of the aircraft itself, um, I'll, I'll call it an aircraft, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but the drone itself, which is if that drone crashes into something or someone, uh, we want to cover any liability of that mm -hmm. as well as any accidental damage to the drone itself so 
a lot of small businesses can't withstand even just a $3,000 claim, mm. uh, sorry, a $3,000 loss. Yep. Um, particularly if they're only earning sort of $100,000, $150,000 a year, that $3,000 loss could be enough to really set them back. Um, so they want to cover that accidental damage. Um, and so what accidental damage means, it really means anything. Mm-hmm. So there are very lim- limited amount of exclusions in the policy. Um, we, we want to cover any operational risk that the customer has while they're flying the drone. So if that just means crashing it due to their own personal fault, then that so be it. Yep. Um, one of the most common ones we do see is actually bird attacks, yep. um, particularly out in Australia, out in the outback. Uh, we see a lot of eagles. For some reason, wedge-tailed eagles do not like drones. They don't like drones, yeah. No, not at all. So <laughs> um, there are there are really easy ways to mitigate that that we've found, we've explored, and and that would be that would probably equate to about anywhere between twenty-five and thirty-five percent of our claims today. Okay. Um, the important point to take is that like not every accident results in a claim either. Mm-hmm. So when I say twenty-five to thirty-five percent of our claims, it might actually be a much higher stat of eagle attacks generally on accidents. Mm-hmm. Sometimes an accident will result in damage, but the damage can be fixed for less than the excess. Mm-hmm. So there is a big difference between what an accident is and what a claim is. Um, a claim will generally be triggered when it's not economical for the operator to fix it themselves. Just like when you crash your car. Exactly right. So your excess might be $1,000, and if you can fix it for less than $1,000... Then why put it through insurance? Yeah, exactly. Cool. So um, based on some of that then, have you got some examples? Have you got some user cases for some clients where um, where this has been beneficial or where it's worked well? Uh, with regards to like some case studies of, yeah. of accidents? Yeah. Yeah, so the one that I always like to use is actually the, the eagle attack scenario. Yep. Um, so we, we've had a substantial amount of eagle attacks over, over the time. Um, and what we've found is that actually putting some, some reflective unnatural colored paper or sticky paper, almost like contact you put on books back mm-hmm. in school, um, on the upper wing of a fixed wing aircraft or even on the, um, the, the struts that go out to the engines mm-hmm. of a multi-rotor, almost zeroes out the possibility of a wedge tail attacking the drone. Okay. Um, one of the biggest, the main aircraft that we had a substantial amount of losses on was the, uh, the Sensefly EB. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously black, it had very, very natural colors all over it with the exception of a, a very small amount of yellow at the very front. Um, and you could almost say it replicated a cockatoo, like a black cockatoo or a, um, or a crow. Um, so once we, we explored some scenarios where we were saying, try putting some high visibility pink contact on the top wing, um, doesn't have to be too much. And our losses almost went completely away. Okay. Um, the, the important thing to take away from that is like, you've got insurance in place, it's there to pay claims out. Haven't got a problem with that whatsoever, but the out of pockets that you're gonna experience when you don't have, a, have an, an aircraft or a drone in your sort of repertoire of tools to use, that's the stuff that people don't foresee. Mm-hmm. So you might be using a drone every single day to do surveying, and as soon as that drone crashes, it might take the best part of a month before the, the insurance gets paid out. Yep. Um, now we try to minimize that. We're, we're sort of, we've had a, a claim paid out in 48 hours, um, but even then, it still might take a week before you've got the drone back. Yep. So anything you can do to prevent a loss is obviously in, in favor of, of everyone involved. It's a bit of a win-win. Have you got other examples? Other ways people yeah. can, uh, I don't want to say cheat the system, but you know, <laughs> what we want to do is we want to reduce uh, the amount of claims people are having. We want to reduce the overheads you guys have, the overheads people have. Yeah. How else can people avoid losses? What are <coughs> things to be found? Yeah, so uh, one of the really important ones, particularly with, um, I'll, I'll say most of the um, 
the, the high volume operators, people are doing lots of cycles, and the mm -hmm. cycle is like when you take off and land quite a lot, um, is battery management. So we generally find for some amazing reason that we have a lot of losses between around 280 battery cycles and about 400 battery cycles. And with a battery cycle, anything that goes a, a recharge below 50% to back to above 90, mm -hmm. that's all we judge as a cycle. Um, so it's not a full discharge, it's just like anything below 50 up to above 90. Any time that happens, and um, if it gets around 300, there seems to be some sporadic failures in the, uh, in the batteries. Um, and the, the aircraft, most multi-rotors just drop out of the sky. And that causes damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and generally they're write-offs because they're dropping yep. from about 200, 300 feet. So um, <clears throat> on top of that, you know, from a liability standpoint, these things might weigh, say, seven kilograms. Um, you know, a, a seven kilogram drone dropping from 200 feet, it do, it's not a helicopter, it doesn't spiral. It, one, once the battery goes off, generally the props will stop so it doesn't auto-rotate. Yep. Um, you know, I like to describe it, you know, just get a brick and drop it from a three-story building. It's gonna have the same effect on somebody underneath. So if you were to hit somebody on the ground with a seven kilogram drone or an eight kilogram drone, um, that, that's potentially deadly. Yep, um, absolutely. So you just keep an eye on your batteries. The battery management's a really important one. Mm -hmm. um, and talking to operators, a lot of them, the feedback they get is just like, batteries are too expensive. You know, like we can't, we can't justify replacing batteries every 300 cycles because it might, they might go through a battery in like two months, mm -hmm. which means they have to start to, you know, start to on charge the value of the battery in every single flight they do, which makes them uncompetitive. So we, we understand that, but it doesn't, doesn't change anything from our perspective. They still crash. So when you, you, you were talking a bit earlier about data and, and data is, is obviously one of the major things that under, underpins this whole industry as well. So where are you getting that data? So I can, I can appreciate that DJI would have a lot of data because we have a lot of products flying around, but what about some of those smaller organizations that are flying, um, you know, not, not commercial off the shelf, UAVs, et cetera? Yeah, so, so the, two, the two things to, to draw upon is like, a, a, I would steer clear of, from, from an underwriting perspective, from an insurance perspective, I'd steer clear of home-built drones um a lot of people have these ambitions of building their own drones that actually has a really detrimental effect on us um, a lot of people think they can solder but they actually cannot yep okay so um the problem with doing your own soldering particularly with homemade drones is that if it doesn't work correctly um the failure can be very very simple mm -hmm. but it can cause the aircraft to crash so from an insurance perspective you'll pay a lot more premium for a home-built aircraft for the smaller manufacturers we actually dealt with a, a, a smaller manufacturer in new zealand uh, a few years back um, and we gave them feedback because we were having a, a number of substantial losses. Um, and those drones were much, much more expensive than the DJI equivalent, but the technology was about the same. Obviously the difference is the scale of DJI, they can reduce the cost. We wanna support every manufacturer we can. All it was was um, they had like a button on their controller that allowed them to order to deploy the parachute. Um, and the button was, it was flush with the controller. And so we had a, a number of operators in a small space of time that kept deploying the parachute accidentally. Um, so we gave some feedback to the manufacturer to be able to fix that. They fixed it and it made the, the problem go away. Okay. So, you know, and it was a very simple solution that you can, you can look to other industries to do it. A, a classic example would be in the helicopter industry where they're doing slung loads. Mm -hmm. They use the exact same solution the manufacturer of this drone used the exact same solution as what they did in helicopters and that they just they just depress the button a little bit so then your thumb can't accidentally press it you have to actually physically push through the depression of the controller to be able to activate the parachute yeah cool makes a bit of sense yeah um 
So we're into 2020. Um, what's the what's the future for Precision Autonomy? Um, have you got new products coming out? What, what's what's the big you know what's what's 2020 for you guys look like? Yeah, so 2020 is pretty big for us. So we started we started underwriting ourselves. So we were previously with a, another insurer. We've moved on to another company called HDI Global. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've just started underwriting ourselves. So we control all the pricing, all the all the distribution ourselves. In November last year, so our our goal for 2020 here in Australia is to really embed that and start to to get more and more people along with precision autonomy. Um, you know, basically, if, if you have any drone insurance policy or if you need a drone insurance policy, the best thing is to, to hit us up. Um, go, come through one of our referral points that, that are out there. If you're with a training provider, they can help you. Um, but we just want to grow the book of business here in Australia. Um, a few other things, we're just about to launch in the USA. We're, we're weeks away from doing that. Um, we're Similar we, products to Australia? Exactly the same yep. products. Uh, we're just about to launch in, in New Zealand, so we are able to underwrite in New Zealand, but we have a, um, a couple of technical boxes we have to tick to be able to make that happen. Um, so we're expecting to do that in the first quarter, and then we'll be able to start to underwrite in New Zealand. Um, and it basically what that means as well is any other geography throughout Southeast Asia and, and, uh, and the Pacific. So um, the, the intent is really to become multi-geography and, and just, to, just to set up our portfolio here in Australia over the course of 2020. Do you see big differences in the different um, industries? So is there, is there a big difference in the way we're doing insurance and underwriting in the States as compared to New Zealand as compared to, compared to Australia or is no. it still very similar? No, very, very similar. Almost globally agnostic. Okay, yep. cool. Yeah, the pricing is slightly different, but that's more environmental and sometimes it has a lot to do with the scale. Yep. Um, but one, one of our goals at Precision Autonomy is to have a globally agnostic insurance pool so we can leverage the scale across the whole globe. So, you know, the people in Australia can benefit from the scale in the US. The people in the US can benefit from the losses here in Australia. Um, you know, we have a much safer environment here in Australia than over in the US from a, from a drone perspective, um, but they have a lot more scale, so their premiums are a little bit cheaper. So we just try to make it a bit more global agnostic. Okay. Um- Mirigan's got, we've got our own internal um, sort of IP around the Mirigan COG, which is the way we look at a, a drone program. And part of, that, part of that COG is finance and part of the finance component is insurance. So we talk to a lot of our clients about insurance and the importance of insurance. I'd be interested uh, on your thoughts of the importance of insurance on drone programs. And, and is, it, is it something that just massive companies need to think about or independent you know, contractors and, and operators need to think about as well? Yeah, so in aviation, um, operating a drone is, is quite a dangerous job particularly if, even if you're a pilot so um, every single person who operates a drone doesn't matter if you're a corporation or the person contracted or even just a single pilot you need to be thinking about insurance and it just comes down to one piece of legislation which is the damage by aircraft act mm-hmm. um, so what the damage by aircraft act actually imposes is a concept called strict liability um, so strict liability basically means that if you're the operator or the owner of the aircraft so, both jointly and severally. So it means that basically they can both be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, you are strictly liable. You have to pay out if you cause liability to any third party. Um, so let, let's use the example. Let's say uh, a large resource company was to contract you mm-hmm. um, and you bring your drone. Um, you would need liability coverage for your drone. Let's use a different scenario. Let's say a contractor, sorry, a resource company contracts you as a pilot, but they bring the drone. Mm-hmm. In that scenario, the resource company would need the uh, the liability coverage, but that you would need to know that it's satisfactory to meet your standards. Right, okay. I'm just gonna pull a bit of a string on that. That's a really important point 
Because what we see in the market at the moment is a bit of, um, I've got the correct coverage in place. And what does that actually mean? <laughs> and it's not the correct coverage in yep. place. So you really do need an aviation policy mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. The first one is the policy is designed for aviation. And what comes with that is that in the event of a claim, you get access to a number of different claim specialists. So you'll get an aviation specialist, you'll get an aviation lawyer, aviation loss adjusters, people who understand aviation. All right, so that's the claim side. The second part is it's priced accordingly. Mm -hmm. So if, if, you, if you don't have an aviation policy and you're just under a general liability policy, um, chances are you may have the claim declined because there might be an exclusion on that policy that says that they don't cover aircraft and a drone is defined as an aircraft. And you probably won't find that out until you have a liability claim and the insurer says, oh, we don't want to pay out $2 million, all right? So taking out the correct coverage, it might cost a little bit more upfront, but it's definitely going to pay dividends in the long run, particularly if you have a liability claim. And something um, in, in line with that, well, we've come across, uh, and I'll use examples of councils, local councils. So local councils, some of them don't have their own drones and they want, uh, they want some sort of service provided and the market will decide how that's delivered, whether by helicopter or drone or whatever. So then what we see is that a council will engage a, a, a drone company to come in and provide them services. These councils don't know what to ask for. So what should they be asking for? And then is there any advice you can give them on how they can then confirm that or, or what they should know, what they should be looking at? Yeah, yeah. So, so if I was a council, um, I'd be looking for a couple of things. The first thing I'd ask for, and just strictly for looking for a, from, a, from an underwriting perspective, mm -hmm. um, depending on what operation you're doing and where you are located as a council, I'd ask for their certification level. Mm -hmm. um, so if they're, if, whether or not they need an R, like an REOC from Casino or not, I would ask for it. That immediately tells me, the person who's contracting, that immediately tells me the level of certification that we're talking to here. Um, if they're an excluded category, that might be completely fine for the operation that they're being conducted. Mm -hmm. But from an internal council management perspective, you should try to put them into those two buckets as quickly as possible. They're yeah. either REOC or they're excluded. Um, and once they go into either of those two buckets, then you have your checklist for each one of those buckets. Um, either way, from an insurance standpoint, you should always seek to have the correct insurances in place. Um, so ask, ask for their certificate of currency and you need to look for aviation third-party liability on that certificate of currency, not okay. public liability. Yep. All right. Having public liability generally means that they will not be covered in the event of an aircraft accident. So you really need to be asking those, those, those operators to be able to have proper aviation third-party liability coverage in place. Um, and I would even go as far to do your own research and actually find out who, what insurers out there actually provide aviation coverage because there's only probably five or six in the market today. Okay. And having that list means that you can easily reconcile, oh, this is this insurer, they are not an aviation insurer, therefore it's, you can ask more questions potentially. Yeah. And so, so again, and, and I'm really talking here to the, the people in procurement that probably have no idea about drones and, and they're using, you know, they're using subcontractors who are using drones for the first time. We're looking for aviation third-party liability is what, what we're looking for. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Okay, yep. cool. Um, look, before we wrap up, uh, I want to ask you about the industry. What, what do you think of the industry at the moment um, as a whole and, and what sort of issues do you foresee into the future or, or opportunities into the future? Yeah, so I've, I do have some concerns about the Australian environment at the moment. I do think that we've slowed down substantially. Um, the only reason why I'd say that is that we have a lot of leadership here in Australia, um, but I think a lot of the leadership has been now being exported, uh, particularly because 
you know, we can point to Castor and say it's their fault, but it's it's really not. They're, they're just under-resourced. Um, and subsequently, because they're under-resourced, a lot of the really key figures in our industry that are, that are world leaders in this field have looked internationally to enhance their own profiles and their branding. Um, you know, we're, we're gonna see us fall behind relatively quickly. Um, too, too often we've been sitting here saying that we are the world leaders in drones, and we are. Um, but, you know, let's look at India. India has some of the best regulation in the world now from a, from a drone standpoint. You can't take off without an authorization. Um, yes, they may not have the best technology in place to be able to make that happen, but they've set the foundation to build upon. Um, what, what that actually means is that they can grow from that um, and having such a huge market, uh, we're going to see a lot more expertise move towards India to be able to facilitate a much greater growth pattern as opposed to here in Australia. Um, having said all of that, I still am pretty comfortable with the fact that Australia is a tremendously safe airspace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what we can, we can seek comfort in a large companies always looking to Australia as a bit of a testing ground. I just think that we, as, a, as an ecosystem, we need to buck that trend. We aren't a testing ground, we're a legitimate market. Um, it's great for people to come here and test things. And there's a lot of people that do benefit from that, but there's also a lot that don't. Um, and eventually we're gonna have a very niche kind of market because there'll be you know 20 or 30 players doing the bulk of the work. And if we can just buck that trend, we might be able to scale a bit bigger, a bit bigger, a bit better, um, and kind of be a bit more of a, of a world leader from an airspace perspective. And that, that's just gonna take more players than just the drone operators to buy into. We're gonna need local councils to buy into it. We're gonna need um, Air Services Australia, CASA, um, insurers, everyone to buy into it just to try and get it moving in the right direction. So there's a lot of work. I, it, and it's probably insurmountable, right? Hmm. Probably, it's probably not gonna happen. But the point is that, you know, I'm, I, I'm of the opinion that unless we, um, there's two ways to look at it. You can either go what, one, down one path, which is to increase regulation, increase the barrier to entry and try and keep a bit of a bit of a rain around it or completely deregulate or, you know, try and deregulate as much as you can to stoke innovation. Um, I don't know what the right answer is. And, you know, potentially deregulating could be really beneficial, which is what we see with the excluded category. Um, and that would promote a lot of people to just start doing it. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm talking about like plumbers and electricians to just start using drones. Um, like we've just got over in the USA, we're just talking to a, a solar company. They, every single electrician that works for that solar company has a drone. Mm-hmm. They're doing a pre-inspection of, it, of the roof before the solar panels go on the roof. And then they're doing a post-inspection after the solar panels go on. Every single electrician. Yep. So why, you know, are we doing that in Australia? I'm not aware of many solar specialists doing that, but we should be. Mm, absolutely. And, so, you know, at the end of the day, we're not putting someone on a roof you know, yeah. unnecessarily. And, you know, we talk a lot about from Mirrigan's perspective, you know, we want to keep people safe through the use of drones. I think that's a perfect um, example. So look, um, we've been talking about insurance and underwriting. Um, give us your details again. Where can people find you? How can they reach out to you and, and ask some questions? Yeah. So. Um, you can contact me just at my, my email, which I'm happy to share directly with you. It's simon.hooper at precision-autonomy.com. Or you can just Google Precision Autonomy and, and just hit us up on the website. Um, we have a little chat bot that you can reach us through or you can just hit get a quote on that webpage. Um, or feel free to you know just give me a call on 0422 859 024. Like, don't call me at 11 p.m., I guess. <laughs> First call, 11 p.m. tomorrow night. Hey, um, thanks heaps for coming in, Simon. It's great to talk about this stuff. Um, I don't think it's well understood um, within the industry, and I think it's going to become a bigger and bigger issue. So, uh, look, let's check in again in six months' time and, and see where we are. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, mate.